All right, welcome back to Sloydcast. I'm your host, Mark Angelini, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Hanna from Peddler Mills Crafts. Crafts. <laughs> and we're back for another Sloydcast. Today we have Adam Ashworth joining us. And Adam, uh, can you tell us where you live and a little bit about your life and what you're up to? All right. Hi. So I live in Leeds in the UK and I'm a full-time, now I, I struggled describing myself, I, I'd say blacksmith to anyone who doesn't know what we do, but really it's mainly uh, sloyd knives, like Greenwood working knives that I, right. I mainly focus on. Um, right, right. Yeah, forging them, grinding them, handling them. If it's sharp, cuts wood. I like to make it. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome, man. And Leeds is south of London. Is that right? Oh, oh, oh. It, no, no. Leeds is in the <laughs> God's own country of uh, Yorkshire. Uh, oh, okay. Wow. Well, way off. Very much north of Leeds. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you have that one. But uh, yeah, if you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. M most Yorkshire folk, if you say that. There, there are seven of it. Oh, fat! That's that's dodgy. <laughs> <man>, that. <laughs> we we need a yap it. Shots map fired. Okay, shots fired. <laughs> yeah, I just pulled up get... a map because obviously I uh, my geography is not very good in the United yeah. Kingdom. <laughs> we need we uh, do that, need a map. Uh, That'll probably help. Uh, Most okay. of our guests have been from the UK. So you're in what they would call Northern England, then, eh? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Northern England. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, strictly speaking, West Yorkshire. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a really nice place. Um, and uh, yeah, I can't really say much, much else and I really <laughs> like it. That's awesome. I've always wanted to try a Yorkshire pudding. We'll just say that. Yeah, you've not had one before. I haven't. No, I watch a lot of British shows and uh, cooking shows. And I always make Very them. I'm like, Damn, that looks so good. But there's a pub not too far away from me, um, and they serve a meal in a Yorkshire pudding. So it's a huge Yorkshire Ooh. pudding, the size of your plate, and they put all your food Dang. in. Oh my god! So, yeah, okay. you, you don't need a plate because your plate is the Yorkshire. Pudding. <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> amazing. Wow, I love it. So, how long have you been making knives for? Because I think I, I kind of came across you probably in the last four years, five years, maybe. Um, and yeah, it well, seems like... yeah, from the, so I got into making knives through green woodwork. Um, let's yeah. mm -hmm. see, I made my first one in late 2018. Yeah, oh, okay. properly forging and making one in 2018. Yeah, um, because uh, it was after I'd been, well, before that, I was at university and I got halfway through university um, and realized it wasn't for me. I was studying physics and it was really hard and the university bet. didn't really sit with me. So yeah. I. And whilst I wasn't studying, I was doing green woodworking at home. Um, it was really nice. I had a little space at the end of my, the garden where I was living at uni. Mm. Uh, and instead of doing work, I'd just sit out the back <laughs> and nail, whittling things or turning bowls or whatever. 
No matter okay. the weather, snow, rain, anything, <laughs> I'd be out there whittling instead of doing actual work. And nice. um, yeah, at the end of my second year, um, I talked to uh, Nick Westerman because he did um, markets. Uh, he went to woodworking shows and I went along and met him there. And I was like, I've got a really long summer holiday. Could I come come over to your workshop for a bit? And he and said, oh, I think I'll see what I can do. And um, yeah, I, I went over and spent uh, about a week with him, not doing anything specific, just messing about. Um, and then he invited me back in like, September to be a guinea pig on the um, Hewn and Home course that we were running. And okay, nice. uh, as part of that, yeah, I got to make my own knife. Um, and yeah, it was, I, I had a little go at making knives there. I was absolutely awful at it. I can't lie. <laughs> um, I think the finished products, he did most of it because I got halfway through and I was like, I, I can't do this. Can you just finish it off for me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no one's going to be perfect when they, they, they do something the first time. Oh, um, so uh, and it kind of just developed from there. So the next year, and at this point, I was starting to realise that I wasn't going to be doing physics. So at that point, <laughs> I'd um, I hadn't strictly left my course. I was on a year out, or a yeah, yeah, it was a year out. So at the next uh, September, I could have gone back to uni, but I was already thinking, yeah, that's not happening. So I found near me, because uh, I was at uni in Nottingham, and near Nottingham there was another blacksmith, um, James Wood. Uh, do you know James? Rings a bell, definitely. Well, um, he makes exceptional uh, axes. Uh, I think that's okay. his name, Greenwood Working. He, he does lots of things. He's, he's a farrier. He works for other people, but he also... Um, makes his own tools and sells them uh, and the axes he makes are really cool and i found okay, him yeah. and he was close so i sent him a message saying oh do you have any anything i could do uh, for you and it was really got lucky with my timing because he was just moving workshops so he said yeah you can come along uh you can help set up my workshop um and i see from there so yeah i, I spent huh. He invited me over and yeah, we set up a workshop like making tables, making what well, just making his workshop a workshop. Um, yeah. and then that just kept on developing from yeah, just like, oh yeah, I'm gonna be here on Friday, do you want to come along? And I wasn't doing anything specific, like I wasn't working for him. It was just okay. like, oh, do you fancy I don't know, making one of the, well, in fact, no, it was more of, I'd go in and say, I want to do this today. And he was like, yeah, okay, let's give that a go. Okay, <laughs> nice. nice. So I learned quite a bit with James, uh, and I was there for a year, and then I moved back hmm. home to Leeds. Uh, that was 2020, I moved back here. Uh, got my own okay. workshop at the end of that year, and then... Yeah, so since 2019, I have been making and selling my own knives, but it's gone from forging them in my back garden at Nottingham to now having my own workshop, power hammer, proper grinder. Um, wow. Yeah, so it's been a very, very slow burn. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm finally, 
finally there. Oh, I, I say finally, but I've still got a lot of progress to make, really. But um, yeah, that's that, that's how I got started in it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I, now. Yeah. I first saw or used one of your knives. We did a uh, <clears throat> little Sloyd gathering last summer here, and our buddy Jordan has one of your knives. And <clears throat> excuse me, got to try one out. It was very nice. Um, I like how long the knife he had, at least, was. Um, that's something I've always liked is long Sloyd knives for some reason. Is that kind of a forte of yours, you think? Like, you just I, generally. That that is something I've noticed with um, Americans is that yeah they're keen <laughs> on the longer knives, and in fact it was when I started making knives I was making nine centimeter long knives that was like the kind of standard one that I was making, and then a lot of people mainly in the US were saying I want a four inch knife which is ten centimeters so I was like. Yeah. All right then, let's do ten centimeters. <laughs> yeah, they're a bit. Uh, do you, would you understand it if I said they're a bit like Marmite? You either love it or you hate it. I've never had it, but I know what it is. Yeah. Well, uh, well, the thing is with with Marmite, it, it's a really <laughs> unique taste, and yeah. people either love Marmite or they hate it. And it's like I a think, yeast ferment product, like thing. Yeah. Kind of like yeah. a yeast goop. It's it's weird. I'm one of those people. Uh, I might get a lot of hate mail for this, but I'm one of the people who <laughs> I don't like it. Okay. Yeah, maybe, maybe edit that part out. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, my, my point being is that some people think that these quite yeah four inches, ten centimeters for a slide knife, like compared to your more one hundred six, which is about right. seven and a half, eight, something like that. It is quite yeah. a bit longer. And people yeah. some sometimes say they don't know what to do with it, like it's huge, they're just gonna stab themselves. But I've also <laughs> had other people say that it's great because with it being so long, like maybe with a, a cookser or something, you can go over the whole bowl and get the entire rim yeah. in one cut. Yeah, yeah. True, yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So that was an American uh invention, we'll call it. Yeah. <laughs> And influence is perhaps what I would say. Okay, influence. There we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ameri- you know, everything's bigger in America. Yeah, so, that, bigger that America. is true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. I mean, I, I I do do different sizes as well. Um. So yeah, yeah I'd say the Americans uh, are interested in that, and then yeah, over here it's definitely the, the smaller ones which are of more okay. interest and. I, I do find myself, I, when I'm carving something, I will be flipping between the knives, but they're definitely both sizes, like the bigger 10 mil or 10 centimeter ones and like the 40 mil, 70 mils, they do have the differences in what you can do with them. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like having, I don't like smaller knives myself, but um, I don't know. Mike's made me a few knives that are pretty nice and decent, decent length. I don't think they're three and a half. Is they're three and a half. Yeah, the longest that I've made. Um. Well, well, I was. I think, oh, go ahead. Oh yeah, with, with something smaller, you can get a lot more control, less power in it, perhaps, but more mm-hmm. control. And yeah. with my smaller knives, they're not very broad as well, so you can get into tight radii with them. 
So they're good for transitions sure. and things like that. And because it's so compact and small, you get a lot of control over it. I mean, I suppose it's the same with the tip of a longer knife, but yeah. with it all being so small, you know, yeah, it's just easy to think about what you're doing, have control. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's certainly uh, advantages and disadvantages to having a longer knife. For me personally, I prefer the longer knife for uh, rough work, just like initial rough work, making longer cuts, taking large pieces off, and then I will transition to a smaller knife and finish off the whatever I'm whittling with a with a smaller knife because it has more control and you can more precise cuts and finishing cuts. So I was curious, Adam, before you you mentioned whittling in your back garden. Um, so was it spoon carving that got you into the knife making? Was that your initial gateway? Uh, so I think the way that I got into spoon carving must be about 10 years or so ago now. Oh, okay. And I, I saw a video of someone making a survival spoon, I think, and like they'd axed out the, a rough spoon and then to make the bowl they got a stick put in a fire so it was embers took it out put it on yeah. the bowl of a spoon and like blew on it and just burnt a bowl into the spoon right right and that, yep. that was how i made my first spoon i've still got it somewhere okay um, nice and wasn't that great but then <laughs> i got into green woodworking a little bit more found out about spoon knives and all of that and then, yeah, mm. I had a more uh, spoon knife. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I've always been into woodworking, making things. And, yeah, as I said, throughout my time at university and, and before, um, I think when I, I was at high school, like, I'd get home and just spend all my time in the garage whittling away at, <laughs> all sorts i think it's mainly bow making which i tried to do in my younger years okay uh, always trying to make the, the perfect bow although i've still not done mm. that <laughs> <laughs> i hear it's hard i've never tried yeah well i think my issue with bow making is that i watch so many videos read up how to do it so much and i was always aiming to make the perfect bow <laughs> Yeah. And like I was always looking for the perfect wood. Um yep. because like you is meant to well, Alpine you from Italy is meant to be the best of the best woods huh. for bow making because it's slow mm -hmm. grown and the growth rings I think are tighter together. Right, it's better than English you, but over here, well, that's very expensive to buy. So the next best thing is like, yeah, English you. And mm -hmm. so I was always searching for the best bit of wood. And then that obviously never happened because finding good bone making wood is difficult or slash and expensive. So I didn't mm. do that. And then, yeah, so it was always just too nitpicky. And then, like, you've mm. got to avoid rings and things like that uh, or knots. And yeah, if I ever got a bit of ash you can use. So sometimes I'd got to get that. And then I was too nitpicky about going through the growth rings. And, <laughs> yeah, I just been the load of stuff because of too nitpicky and because of that yeah i've never made a, a good one that's it you know it's an interesting point you bring up because uh our last interview with chris 
uh, or Zach, Zach, <laughs> Zach Christinger, um, Chris uh, cuts. Yeah. Christinger's cuts. Um, his story was getting into pole leg turning was not knowing what he was doing at all. And just kind right. of each step of the way being like, Oh wait, what do I do now? And then look up a video. Right. Um, and as you were describing that experience with bow making, I was just thinking there's a term I use in my work, uh, analysis paralysis. <laughs> and so I work with people that are managing their properties, their land, and it's very common for them to think of all the variables and all the details and, you know, which thing do I buy? How do I do it? And they'll just get stuck because right. they have information overload and they don't have a clear direction. Yeah. Um, so that's just an interesting thought that came to my mind that sometimes when we don't research a bunch, right. we're almost more apt to take action and mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. make mistakes and then right. from the mistake, learn and try something yeah. new. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that's a hundred percent right. And yes, yeah, I've seen like videos of people making longbows and things, and been watching it, thinking, God, that, they've done that wrong. Oh no, I wouldn't have done it. Like, <laughs> but it gets to the end right. of the video, right. and they've got a working yeah. longbow or whatever. So yeah, yeah, I, I think you're, you're spot on there. And uh, yeah, I mean that's that's kind of how our ancestors and primitive cultures have done it for you know, millennia, they just, they didn't have access to YouTube and libraries and the internet. They just, it's all trial and error, you know, just take action and, you know, recover from mistakes and get better. See, I I was raised by artist. Well, my dad was, he's an artist. And so he always made mistakes, always tried weird, wacky things. Yeah. So I've always been the person that I won't read a manual when I get a tool. I don't read the manual. I just, Try to figure it out. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and my wife's always getting on me, like, you yeah. got to read the manual and yeah. step by step. Yeah. And I'm just like, no, nope, I'm going to, I'll break it. it and then I'll figure out why it broke. Yep. And then I'll figure out how it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's more fun doing it that way, isn't it? It's so much more fun. So much more fun. I think part of your brain gets activated probably differently when you're, uh, you know, you don't have a manual in front of you or clear instructions and how to put something together or use a tool a certain way. I think it's more intriguing and challenging and activates, like I said, certain parts of your brain that um, to some degree, it feels very fulfilling and rewarding after you finish. You're like, oh, I figured this out. I never had to read anything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? But, yeah. So was your longbow making, was that strictly just because you like making bows are you interested in hunting what was um it was archery so bow hunting is illegal over here um, oh really oh, yeah geez. yeah um but archery was something well i've done that since i think i was not 15 okay and yeah. you know, it was getting being into archery also liking like my dad didn't really have many uh woodworking tools but i always like playing about sure trying to make anything really so i've always had that little hands-on uh side of me and uh yeah, yeah. Make, uh, doing archery then getting into bow making and then just cascading into like woodwork yeah just there's just something 
soothing about it to me because like if I have a few days off for example like I know if I'm ill or something or I just can't get to my workshop and I've spent one or two days not being crafty it'll get to the end of the day and I'm like bouncing about like I've got to do something I need to do something yeah yeah that's awesome yeah, I can relate, except for I, I have almost no time to do any woodwork at the moment. <laughs> yeah. But it's very limited time. Very cathartic. Yeah. So you, from the bows to the spoons, um, did you, like most people, you learned about spoon carving and then you kind of fell into the rabbit hole? Yeah, so I think back when I was learning, I was looking at the, the Facebook page for spoon carving i can't remember what it's called exactly but you know the one i mean oh yeah the big group yeah the big one so i was looking at that quite quite a bit um because yeah as i said back 2018 i think i got into z outdoors videos um Mm. those are so great like oh yeah perfect people think that I mean, I think when I was getting into it, I, I agree with these people are thinking like, God, this video is like three and a half hours long. I've not got time for that. But then yeah. watch it and you realize that nothing is cut out. And for an instructor, a video teaching you, it's so it doesn't miss anything out. So yeah. it's not like you'll cut a huge part out and you've skipped a load and you don't know what happened there mm-hmm. so if you want to learn how to do anything he's got a video on it's just the best and yeah i got into i went to spoon fest uh that year uh, then the next year spoon Hooley. so yeah it's just immersing myself into the the green woodworking world slowly and uh that's lovely and then you realize you needed a knife <laughs> uh yeah then I, I think uh metal working was was definitely a, a calling to me that that's for sure yeah. i was never i think the, the cooks that i carved i got on well with um because I, I enjoy i think ones are quite big they can be a bit rough but also look quite refined um yeah I think uh, John Mulaney is the best at doing something that looks rough, but also incredibly refined. Uh, have you seen his Tucker Bowls? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, I love, we want to get him on the podcast, actually. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I've, I've got one of his Tucker Bowls. And what makes his stuff so unique is he puts huge facets on. It looks... Right. Like it's just been axed out really quickly, and he does make them really quickly, but it's in such a precise way that yeah, they, they look um, they look bang on. But yeah, my point is yeah, with something bigger like a cookser, you can kind of get away with that. But with spoons, you've got to be neat and intricate, and I could never really get on with that. So I, I'm not sure I ever really made a spoon I was incredibly happy with, but. Yeah, the more I got into forging knives and grinding knives, it's it's not like when you're spoon carving, like you take one cut too many and it's too far. Metalworking can be a bit 
slower and you know you're moving the metal about so if you need it moving that way you can hit it and it'll go that way and it yeah i'd say it's a bit more forgiving perhaps and uh But, and the signs behind it, because as I said, I was doing physics at right. and although it might look like you're just hitting metal with a hammer and it's a bit, you know, caveman-esque, <laughs> get the, the, the uh, perfect knife, you know, you've got to put a lot of thought and experimenting into it, um, like, um, yeah, I, I've been trying to a perfect uh, knife etching recently um mm. like reviving a medieval technique oh, um, cool. it's, it's like basically like coal rosing but on metal oh wow and yeah trying to get that a hundred percent is uh it's got its challenges and yeah i i like that challenge of trying to work out what the best variables are and what the variables are and what the best ones are and uh yeah so it takes a lot of the thought processing and uh yeah it's it's, it's keeps me on my feet so yeah i'm curious about that what do you use to do the etching you use a tool uh yeah so i i it's um yeah uh so it's a bit like Damascus, but not so everyone knows what Damascus is. It's like different metals forged, welded into a pattern, then taken to clean metal, dip, dipped in acid. You take it out, pretty pattern. Yeah, except with this, you don't forge it into the metal. The metal is one steel, and yeah, you um scratch it on through um a, a resist hmm. um and so you expose clean metal put into the acid so where has so where the ground is still on the resist is still on it doesn't get etched but where you've scratched it off it does get etched so you huh. get a nice black line where you've etched whoa uh, yeah, yeah. We had a little go at it at the, the bowl gathering this year, and um, some people were incredibly keen from it. So I, I came back from that and I was like, all right, I'm going to perfect this and get it 100% right. Wow. And I, I think I'm there with it. Um, but um, yeah, it it's, um, originates from the, the 1500s of uh, decorating medieval mm. armour. Um, and like if you Google like etched armor, you'll see what I mean. And it's just the most intricate and fabulously de decorated stuff ever. Um, yeah, it's like looking actually on your yeah. Instagram, the uh, photos you've got from a museum, it looks like. Yeah, yeah. So there's a museum uh, in the center of Leeds called the Royal Armories, where they have a collection of all sorts of weapons and armor mainly from medieval times uh, hmm. and yeah i went there to do some uh, research and got absolutely blown away uh, oh yeah that I, I knew of one amazing. piece but i didn't know that there was so many um because there's there's one piece there which is 
uh, quite funny. Um, in Henry VIII's time, there was a there was something called the Field of Cloth of Gold, um, where he went over to France. Um, it was a huge festival, not festival. I'm not really a super historian, but he went over to French France to um, have a big. Uh, it's not festival, but you know what I mean. Uh, uh, tournaments. That's it. Um, okay. And he commissioned this amazing suit of armor, which I believe in the 60s, NASA came over to have a look at it to design their spacesuits. Because the thing oh. is, with this suit of armor, it covers <laughs> his entire body, no matter what position he's in, which wow. for armor making was phenomenal. But like three months to go, the French changed the rules, so he had to cobble up a new set of armor. Um, uh, considering most of his uh, production team that made the armor was already in France. It was a bit like, oh dear, what do we do here? So um, they cobbled it together, but it needed decorating as well. So it has a big skirt to it, and it's decorated in a checkerboard fashion, except since it was rushed, it it really does not look good. Um, like they've, they've made lots of mistakes, and it whoever etched it must never have etched anything because to be able to etch like this you've got to be able to draw and whoever did this could not draw <laughs> but, but try to draw roses on them and if you don't know their roses yeah there's no chance you know what they're gonna be <laughs> i'm um, looking at it right now actually yeah and uh yeah so that I knew about that, so I was telling people about that at the bowl gathering. But yeah, I went to the Royal Arms to have a look at that, and then yeah, got blown away by all the other stuff, which is etching. Actually, took time. People took time to etch those and put skill into it. Hmm. Like uh, they're also hot blued, and they're they're gilded with gold as well. So it's hmm. just phenomenal what they could do five hundred years ago. Yeah, wow. I had so much more time. Yeah, and uh, less distractions. <laughs> now, these would have been elite pieces of armor. These weren't your yeah. average. Oh, yeah, these, these are owned, owned by like earls, dukes, kings, all yeah, of that. Yeah. Um, right. And yeah, they'll the have cost, like in today's money, like hundreds of thousands of pounds. Oh, yeah. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, so it's nice to go there and be inspired, but at the same time, you've got to think, yeah, this probably took a good like six months to make. Yeah. So yeah. You, you don't want to go there and think, I feel like, like you can't do that because, uh, yeah, these, these people did it in more than a weekend. <laughs> sure, mm. sure. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. I'd never heard of that. What kind of uh, acid did you think they used back then? I mean, I know with um, etching Damascus or San Mai or some of the more modern ways of um, of etching steels, they use uh, ferric chloride or uh, like a, a coffee etch. What do you uh, What are you using? What do you think they use back in the day, or they had available to them to use for this kind oh. of? Uh, I have been asked this. I have been asked this. I have. I think I tried looking at them. If I'm honest, I'm not entirely sure. Um, Mm -hmm. I think if I was to take a guess, that they would have access to many of the acids that we have today. 
Um, right. I'd have thought, I mean, perhaps not in the same concentrations and purities that we do today, but um, right. I think the basic ones like sulfuric, nitric, yeah, I, I imagine that they would have the, the, the simple ones, mm. but I'm, I'm not too sure. I'd, I'd have mm. to ask a, a chemical historian if, yeah. if there is one. Apple cider. <laughs> Apple cider vinegar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just some really old cider so that's is, been sitting there for a while. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't have to be like super concentrated acid because the weaker right. it is, just the longer you leave it in there. Sure. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. So there's a time component. Yeah, there's certainly a time component depending on the uh, the pH level of I the see. solution you're uh, you're etching. Uh, I mean, you could use white vinegar, you could use apple cider vinegar, you can use all sorts of different acids. I think, yeah, the the time component is probably one of the most, uh, I don't have much experience in, in etching, but it's something that I would like to start doing in the form of, uh, you know, sand my knives and stuff like that. One of the things that I like to do is raw iron etching. Now, I'm aware mm. over in the USA, mm. I, I don't think there is an awful lot of raw iron. We have some. We have some old old pieces that we could uh, still get our hands on. I have a few old pieces of fencing that came from a town uh, pretty close to where I live, raw, raw iron fencing. But, mm. yeah, it's not something that... Um, the industry here still produces, but I imagine oh, but in the it's not U made over here. But there's a lot of historic raw iron. Oh sure, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's an awful lot of old railings and things like that, which are made. Yeah, and a lot of these wrought iron railings have since been like replaced with wire fencing, but they're not removed. The old wrought iron ones are just left there to fall apart. Right. And so, yeah. But it's not too difficult to to find old raw iron, and uh, yeah, yeah, what I like about it is when you clean it to bare metal and dip it in your acid, it looks like mm -hmm. uh, wood grain. Oh yeah, huh. yeah. I have some, and I'm really excited to try that. Actually, I'm I'm really looking forward to that process. I think it's really neat um, how wrought iron works. Yeah, one of my favorite things I've ever done with raw iron is that um, a few years ago, I went on holiday uh, to the Isle of Mull in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And I'm always a bit of a, a magpie when it comes to scrap iron or scrap steel. Like I see a bit and I'm like, oh, I'll have that. And um, in Scotland as well, there's a lot of older states and things like that, which all have these old raw iron. So the west coast of Scotland is a great place to find old raw iron. So I found some raw iron on Mull, and I think we went to another beach, and then we found an old pallet which had been washed up and wasn't made out of softwood, which most pallets are that I've come across. This was made out of some sort of... Um, hardwood uh, i'm not entirely sure what it was and i got this um yeah pallet wood and i thought oh wouldn't it be cool to make a knife from materials that i've entirely got from mold <laughs> and then we went to another beach you might gather there's a lot of beaches in on the west coast of scotland yeah oh yeah <laughs> we went to another beach and then 
really bizarrely, I found an old file hidden in the rocks which had rusted away. I was like, mm. yeah, because the thing is with raw iron, it has low carbon content and low yeah, carbon very low, content. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Carbon content dictates how hard your steel gets and how hard your steel gets me it, it determines how, how how well of an edge your knife will hold. So raw iron right. has low carbon. It won't uh, get hard and therefore it won't hold an edge. But mm. files have high high carbon and will hold an edge. Um, I mean, right. I presume you know this. This is more for the benefit of the listener. Um, oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, after finding this file, is like yeah, this this will hold an edge and this will be good steel. Um, mm-hmm. And then there was also a craft shop uh, selling bits for making sticks, but they also sold little spaces of cow's horn. So, um, hmm. yeah, I got some horn, I got some wood, and I got some steel, and I got some iron, all the things to make a knife. Um, hmm. um, yeah, the way you, that I made this knife was a laminate. I think the um, old mourers, the, the frost mourers, uh, yeah. those are laminated. Yeah. Right, um, right. Yeah, by, made by forge welding here. Yeah carbon steel in the middle would be raw iron over the edge mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. And this comes from historic times because carbon steel is a lot more or was a lot more difficult to produce and therefore sure, right. more expensive so you could right. make a knife uh from entirely carbon steel but that would be mm-hmm. really expensive so right what they used to do was make your raw iron knife, but then just put a thin sliver of carbon steel in the middle. Um, mm, right. And yeah, you, it, it's still a technique used today, and it's, it's more or less yeah. just aesthetics, really. And you can oh, sure. weld line on the old mortars on some of them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that that's just yeah forge weld thing, which is getting it really hot, smacking it together. It welds together. Yeah, yeah we I made. Just, we were talking about forge welding this morning with Mike guy here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I tried my yeah, forge. Think... Uh... Go ahead. Sorry. Well, yeah, I was going to say people think it's it's really mysterious and it mm. it it can be, but it's more or less. Make sure your metal's clean. Mm-hmm. Make sure your fire is really hot. I mean, if you're using a solid fuel fire, when you pull that out, it wants to be just sparkling. If you're using a gas forge, it wants to yeah. be really bright yellow, almost white. Right. Um, and yeah, you want to clean it to bare metal. Um, and then put it all together, or you steel that you want to forge weld. Um, because the thing is, if you have it all separate, um, the surfaces are going to oxidize. So if you're making something right. like Damascus, you want to layer it up and yeah, make sure that there aren't really any exposed surfaces. Um, normally, you'd, you'd weld um, it all together, but uh, right. you can wrap it up in... I think the first ever Damascus that I made at home, because I didn't have a welder, what I did was layer it all up and then wrap it up in stainless steel wire. Yeah. And then yeah, just gave it a good whack with the sledgehammer, and yeah, that that worked. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, using what flux as well. Um, there's a really good flux uh, called Iron Mountain. I think it's Sulfur Farriers. Um, huh. It's a mixture of a flux and iron powder or something like that. I don't know. It's some yeah. bizarre mystery powder, and it just is these knees. It's so good for, for welding. Because, I use um, borax. Have you used borax? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the main differences between borax and this stuff is that, like, borax is, it goes really glassy, and it also just kind of melts off the surface, whereas yeah. this Iron Mountain stuff, you pour mm. a little bit on, and it just sticks. So obviously, oh, you, nice. you, you've got to get the steel like, like kind of red hot first. It won't stick to cold right. stuff. You've got to right. get it but you can use far less of it and it just sticks to the surface hmm. i'll have and to give that really a try or if you're doing damascus stuff you can sometimes get uh, delaminations where it might pop open a little bit this hmm. stuff is really good if you spot one of those early on enough you can just pour a little bit on there and usually hmm. it fixes it nice yeah, I'm just getting started with the forge welding. I, I would really like to um, do some San Mai style uh, kitchen knives. And I, like I said, I have some wrought iron sitting around um, that I would like to use. And uh, yeah, it's when I, I did my first forge weld a couple of weeks ago, it felt pretty mysterious. Uh, <laughs> I was almost like a magician, just like <laughs> in awe after I did it. I was like, wow, this is incredible stuff that you can just take two pieces of metal and just using heat, uh, fuse them together. So what I find uh, intriguing too is that, um, like you were talking about earlier, how wrought iron was so much more widely available and uh, very uh, inexpensive compared to high carbon steel. Yeah. And nowadays you can you know, pretty much get uh, high carbon steel anywhere and it's much harder at least here in the u.s to to find rod iron i mean you really have to go looking for it and um i mean there's there's plenty of it around but i think it's it's not that easy to source and find find those places to get it from well definitely i know over here no one is making raw iron anymore and i don't think it has been made for a long time even in Sheffield, they're not place. they're not making any in Sheffield. Nah, well, I think it's no. just because uh, mild steel, so low carbon steel, uh, mm -hmm. is a lot easier to manufacture because you can cast that, you know, uh, melt all the ingredients together and just cast it out and then forge it on from there. Whereas raw iron. I think is a bit more of a lengthy process. Um, hmm. I think it's got to be consolidated, so like forge welded on itself lots of times, and then you get the, right. the raw iron, which is why it has this grain-like structure to itself, because as you as you weld it together whilst you're making it, it gets lots of um, impurities, and I think it's silica, which is the impurity in it. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm just guessing, really. Um, right. And that's why it has that grain. Whereas yeah. I think in today's society, especially for structural steels, you want to know what you're getting is homogenous and you want to know what's in it. 
So right. I don't right, think wrought right, right. iron is that suitable um, for that mm. process. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I that don't think sense. it's been made for a good 50-odd years over here. Um, yeah. Huh. There is there is one company I know of which uh, charters boats and goes and finds old ship chains or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And they bring yep. it back, and then, yeah, they, they process it into bar stock. Nice. Huh. But compared yeah. to other steel, is really expensive. Yeah, the military here in the U.S., especially uh, the Navy ships back in the day, uh, anchor chains were all made of wrought iron, I think. Huh. And uh, yeah, there's still quite a bit of that around, but you can imagine those big chains were fairly large stock. Yeah. And to break that down is, uh, I think, is an incredible amount of work. Um, and as, as you know, uh, wrought iron... It's um, you have to forge it a certain way because you kind of have to follow the grain, um, the grain path uh, and the grain direction, and and it also has oh. to be forged really really hot because yeah. if you if you hit it cold or at colder temperatures, it could essentially uh, the grain could fall apart and it could crumble. Well, yeah, this is the delamination that I was on about because there's all these grains right. of of this grain in it. It's just like all these layers just want to pop apart. So right. if you want to like forge a point on it, you might notice right. you get a big nasty cold shut, a delamination at the end. Um, because as you forge it to a point, it gets colder and it just wants to pop apart. Or I've tried like making a bottle opener before, which is you get some bar, you punch a hole in it near the end. And because it's near the end, um, like you can imagine if you had like a bunch of straws and you put a hole in it, it's just going to split it out at the end, isn't it? And that's exactly right. what happened with this bottle opener. It just split the end open. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, working that is a bit of a challenge. Um, mm -hmm. Like one way you can do it is like you, you split it open and then you just weld over the ends into yeah mm -hmm. your rounded shape. Uh, that's oh, how. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a blacksmith thing, I think California called James Austin. Um mm -hmm. he makes phenomenal axes. Um and they're all forge welded. Um so yeah, the traditional way of making axes is not from like one piece drop forge or whatever, like a lot of axes are today. It's several pieces all welded together. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, this James Austin is really, really good at it. Um and in fact, his website, he's got a big blog and he's got lots of pictures of how he makes these things. And it's um, really quite useful because he doesn't just do massive, really cool axes. He does like um, dog head style hammers as well. Those are quite simple mm. or, or the Viking style. But mainly what, a lot of what he does is, is Viking style. Um, yeah, it's useful to have a look at his website. And, have a go at what he's doing yeah hmm. yeah during lockdown I, I did actually try doing that although uh, yeah he's got a lot at that point in my blacksmithing career i, I had uh, not a lot of experience so not a lot of it, lot of it went very well but uh, yeah you just got yeah. to try it haven't you? yeah <laughs> i think uh it'd be incredibly hard for me anyways to to begin to think or even uh, get around to making an axe without having um, like a striking anvil or maybe even a, a power hammer or a, or a press. And so 
Well, I heard you say earlier you do you do have a power hammer that you use around your shop. Yeah. Um, yeah. It just celebrated its second birthday or its second oh, birthday nice. with me. Um, <laughs> nice. And yeah, it completely changed. I went from being able to do. I don't know, 12 or so knives in a couple of days because I was having to hand forge them. Yeah. They weren't that great. They weren't that straight. I, well, I say straight. Uh, the power hammer makes things dead flat, dead straight. Because when you're yeah. hand hammering, it's really mm-hmm. difficult to get everything completely parallel, in line, all of that. You're going to forge Absolutely. texture in. Um, yeah. And yeah, the power hammer gets rid of all of that. And it's just a lot quicker. Um, right, of course, like, yeah, for production work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this yeah. last year, I've been running knife making courses at things like Spoonfest, Spoontown, things like that, and um, it takes about two hours for people to rough forge and grind their knife. So that oh, for sure, yeah, yeah, forging yeah. it to shape and grinding it to shape, mm-hmm. and that I said about two hours, and. Yeah. Some people will often say, oh, right, how long does this take you in your workshop? And I say, well, I've got a power hammer, and, like, I can make a knife in, like, three heats, maybe. Nice. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, but that's yeah. just because the power hammer makes it so so bloody quick. Yeah. 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 And for forge welding, uh, power hammer is probably so much nicer to have as well. Yeah. Well, it, it depends on your kind of forge weld, really. For something like Damascus, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. but there's there's lots of different kinds of forge welds, and uh, right. yeah, some of them, like a lot of them, you want to lightly tap it together first, and then of course, you yeah, go to town on it. Um, right. But right. Uh, yeah, it's not impossible. For folded axes are possible to do by hand. Um, so yeah, during lockdown, uh, I was doing a lot of messing about, and that was included making some axes. And mm. the folding of the eye, well, the making the eye, folding it over and welding it, I think I did all of that by hand. Because I was at James's workshop, so I had access to his power hammer. And mm. I did use it a little bit at the end to speed it up, but you could definitely make a, a small axe by hand and right. uh, i mean it definitely helped if you had a friend uh with a sledgehammer yeah uh, yeah so uh, yeah that's the point um if you look on my instagram i recently put a picture up of uh an etched axe that i did yeah. that axe uh oscar rush and i forged at spoontown last year uh, hmm. forged another one at spoonfest uh, this year, who's got that one? Um, and yeah, that's all done by hand, but that's done with a, a sledgehammer, not on your own. Um, yeah, making axes on your own isn't really the easiest, but it is possible. Yeah, yeah, it's a tough process. <laughs> it's a tough process. I wanted to ask you a few technical questions about your knives. Um, oh, yeah. I know we've gone gone off on a tangent a little bit with wrought iron and other other topics, yeah. but. Um, <laughs> Can you, uh, besides uh, the length, uh, which we've already uh, talked about a little bit, um, I'm curious how thick how thick is the stock? The when the you know with the finished knives, I know you said you're using a power hammer. How how thick is your um, your knives are 
being forged too, and then um, bevel angle. Uh, which which bevel angle are you uh, are you using to set your bevels? And is there uh, different ones that you offer with different bevel angles? Um, and yeah, tell us your preferences on that as well. And the type so, of steel, of course. Which type of steel are you using? So I start off with sheet steel, um, which is called Ian 42J. That's a British nomenclature. I can't, can't say that word very often. That's how the British people call it. Um, uh. I think it's quite similar to 1080 in the US, but the grading will okay. be a bit different. It won't be okay, the same. So a high carbon, high to medium carbon. Yeah, um, I yeah. think it's about 70 to 80 percent, oh, 07 to 0.8 percent carbon. Um, right. I think, um, uh, it's fairly straightforward to heat treat, uh, yeah. Um, and yeah, I get that at just over three mil. Um, okay. and then yeah, when I'm forging it, I forge a distal taper, so that's where it's at the handle. It, the thickness tapers down towards a point and the thickest okay. point is um about 2.7 2.8 mil um yeah i i'm not precise to the point one of a millimeter um so well at the end of the day i'm trying to make these as quickly but also as well as i can and if uh yeah i'm getting them all, right. all to 0.01 of a millimeter so that's being too nitpicky um but yeah they're all about 2.7 to 2.8 mil um okay the knives which i get laser cut are constant thickness and they are i think a tenth of an inch at 2.54 mil okay um, and i put a scandy grind on all of my knives and they're all 25 degrees uh, wow that's pretty low nice I'm not too sure what the um, the error in that, but I I don't think it's a huge amount. Um, yeah. Because yeah, once my table is set, like I've got a reference block which I put into the belt grind, so I know it's set at the same angle every time. Right. Um, okay. Yeah, I think uh, twenty five degrees, uh, and they're all flat round. Um, yep. Yeah, I mean, I have messed about with hollow grinding before, and it 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 has its place. Uh, mm -hmm. Um, I think like the the first ever knife I made was with Nick, and that was hollow ground, and sharpening yeah. that was a dream. Like, mm. um, he he quite enjoys getting his hair uh, his knives hair whittling sharp, <laughs> and by that I mean getting your knife sharp enough that you can pull a hair, and it can grab the so your hairs aren't smooth they've got little they're like little fir trees aren't they I, I don't know what they're called but it gets in a little crevice and then you can split so not cut it in half uh half perpendicular but cut it in half parallel with the the, the hair and mm -hmm. yeah to do that you need a very sharp knife yeah yeah hmm. Nice. But uh, I, I find doing hollow ground knives just a bit too finicky because mm. there's a lot of, well, once you've machine ground it, then you have to go over it with um, wet and dry oil. 
some sort of abrasive because I'll, I'll use a polishing wheel after I've ground my knives yeah. and uh, if you do that on a hollow ground knife you'll just put a micro bevel on it yeah kind of vexes the, 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 the edge a little bit yeah I mean you can do it like that but if you want to sell a good hollow ground knife then yeah you've got to use abrasives to uh, finish it off yeah that involves a lot more uh, hand hand sharpening and and finishing compared to uh, to just a knife that you could uh, grind on your grinder and and just touch up a little bit at the end because that's generally how I um, I do my knives I go to about 26 degrees and I almost get it to uh, to sharp on the grinder and then I just do a little bit of hand sharpening at the end and uh, and stropping yeah, well, I think um, I take mine at, um, well, I use Trizex, uh, and the mm -hmm. Trizex don't have your standard grit uh, naming system. It's something else. But I use Trizex up to an equivalent of, I think, 1,200 grit. Oh, nice. But then I use um, yeah, uh, polishing wheels to uh, yeah. take it up to... Uh, yeah, a, a finished uh, knife, and uh, it is because it's spinning so fast, and you've put compound on it. It, it does right. actually cut it. Um, right. So I think when people think of polishing, you're probably not thinking of actually removing material, and um, yeah, yeah, it, it does, it does yeah. a little bit. So it, yeah. it will make it really quite sharp. Right. Wow, so you're going to twelve hundred yeah. degrees on your on your grinder. Um are you white grinding or are you uh just going really slow on a variable speed grinder? Uh no, I've got the belt going as fast as it can. Hmm. Um okay, this is after I was heat told uh, -huh. uh yeah, after heat treatment. Um something yeah. that I was told was treat abrasives like they're free. Um <laughs> because the thing is if you hold on to them, try really hard to get your monies out of them. Mm -hmm. They're going to be going blunter, so they won't True. Yeah. cut as quickly. They won't cut as right. flat. Right. Um, especially when you're roughing in the bevels. If you, you yeah. use a sharp belt or a new mm -hmm. belt, it will cut it nice and flat and you'll get a nice bevel on it. If you use quite That's a, a worn-down belt, it's going to cut slower and you won't... Mm -hmm such a, a nice crisp bevel it'd be a bit wobbly and all over the place and then you That's go to true. the rear bit when you're finishing it off mm -hmm. if you're using new belts they're going to cut quicker um yeah. you won't get scratch marks left in um mm -hmm. and they won't overheat your blade if you're yeah. using older blades yeah you'll get scratch marks left in from lower grits and you'll yep. struggle to get them out uh, and they'll yeah. cut slower, so there's a good chance of overheating, especially at the tip of your blade as well. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So hmm. that's really good advice. That's really good advice because I I tend to use older belts <laughs> to kind of maximize the uh, you know the 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 consumption of the belt just because they're so darn expensive sometimes. But it does make a lot of sense because you uh, there's um, you won't make any mistakes and you definitely won't mess up the knife or and mess up the temper on it so that's really good advice is to use new belt pretty much for every knife so how many how many knives do you get per belt say 
I reckon I can get maybe 25-ish out of okay. a belt. Um, mm, okay. Uh, and yeah, I'm also using ceramic belts. Um, yeah. For, well, yeah, for the low grits, I use ceramic. Um, those, again, they're not cheap, but they yeah. last longer, they cut better. Right. Um, I think a lot of in woodworking, it's just aluminium oxide uh, or mm-hmm. aluminium, should I say? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and I suppose that's all right for for woodworking, but yeah, metalwork it goes blunt really quickly. Um, right. The next step up from that is zirconium oxide, I think, and that works mm-hmm. all right. But then the final one is ceramic and. Yeah, those belts are expensive, but they cut well, they last long. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think if you try to be um, fussy and like save money on belts and try to get as much out of them, you're going to use more time and ruin more products trying That's to right. save money more. in the long term. So I think... Yeah, it'll cost you more. Exactly. So if you just go with it, and accept the fact that you're going to have to go through a lot of belts, you get a better quality of product quicker. Right, right. That makes sense. It's so it's interesting because I, I think a lot about, you know, in, in the past, and especially our our ancestors, and we think of a Sloyd knife or mm. um, actually Mike, Mike and I, we uh, – we did some, well, I was doing the knife sharpening, but a friend of ours had a, a, their son had beat up their like Mora pocket knife. And so we were sharpening it and <laughs> we just found a river, a flat river stone. And we were using some, uh, some seltzer water actually. <laughs> sparkling water. yeah, <laughs> Some sparkling water. And we just sharpened the knife right there on this river stone. And, yeah. um, really cool. Yeah. And it, it, it got it actually pretty sharp yeah pretty dang sharp yeah um it got me thinking though like you think about a hollow ground knife and i'm just mm. just historically speaking what you know how how were the tools sharpened is it all natural stone wheels like yeah. what what yeah <clears throat> so, so i'm aware that the vikings used to have these little tiny stones mm. uh oh, right that's it and they're either used for sharpening or testing if coins were actually silver. That's it. Huh. Okay. So I was going to say, oh yeah, they were used for sharpening, but then I just remembered that's where the debate came. So I, I have to point out, whilst I was at uni, I lived with the people doing Viking studies, so they're, they're mad oh, historians. Cool. They know everything. So yeah, yeah that, cool. I, I picked up a few things uh, such as this um, uh, from them. So I think I think, yeah, people definitely would have had, because the, even the tool steel back back in the olden days would have been of poorer quality, so you'd have sure. to be constantly sharpening things. Uh, right. I think they would have definitely got their knives as sharp as we do today, but mm-hmm. perhaps it was just more effort getting there. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's super interesting. I really like the uh, the idea of using stones, though. Like you know, as much as I enjoy using my grinder, just the amount of belts you have to go through, and just the the dust and the grit that gets generated from it, it's 
it's not something that I really enjoy. That's probably the least uh, enjoyable aspect to knife making is grinding. So um, using wet stones, using wet wheels like a Tormac or something, something different where you're spending a lot more time. But you sold your Tormac. I did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a Tormac at one point in time and just uh, I didn't like the hollow grind that it would produce. I wasn't really a big fan of hollow grinding. Yeah. Um my knives yeah. and so yeah. I, I did end up getting rid of it now it's i thought that it was very useful for um you know like kitchen knives and and things of that sorts but um i i didn't find it to be useful for axes or uh, or scandy uh standy grinds on on certain knives but um but yeah i mean it's I think it's really hard to, as a knife maker, to figure out ways to maximize efficiency and cut on time that it takes for sharpening things. And um, I do like finishing my knives on whetstones. Uh, so after I go up to about 320 grit, occasionally 600 yeah. grit on my grinder. Yeah. And then I transition to um, um, sticky back uh adhesive paper and then i i try to finish on a whetstone so uh if it was up to me i would do everything on a whetstone uh <laughs> right after i set the bevel on the grinder but that you know that could take a very long time well if you don't like the dust you can set up little um misters to point at you your belt grinder uh yeah yeah white grinding yeah, i've heard of that everything really soggy so uh, yeah. Have you tried that? I'm, I'm, uh, no. Um, no. James, my friend, James Wood, he, he's done that. Uh, yeah, I saw it and was like, oh, I'm not doing that. I don't want to talk anything. Yeah, I'm yeah. quite fortunate. I've got a, a Versaflow, so it's a powered air, air respirator. That yep. oh, nice. was life changing. Before yeah. that, yeah. I was using like face masks, um, like oh, yeah. proper ones for. for not the like surgical ones but proper dust masks um, yeah. but i wear glasses so it was like pulling on my face and wearing it for so long uh, uh, yeah. like your glasses steam up yeah you get strap up but this powered respirator it since it's constantly it's a positive pressure device so it blows yeah. air in over your face and oh, cool. um it, it's like a, a a cycle helmet with a visor on it so hmm. uh, and the visor has just a little elastic strap at the bottom and it's not yeah. very tight because since it's blowing air in air can't get in um from outside so it's yeah. just really comfortable to wear and yeah. yeah you get a big big screen big visor to look through so when you can wear nice. glasses and things like that and yeah yeah i can wear that for yeah. ages and be completely fine yeah I I, mean, I do use a three I, I, I got that. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah. I was gonna I was say gonna I do say, use I, a three M. <laughs> all right, all right. I was just gonna There's say. a little bit of a feedback. I think I'm 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 kind of getting a delay on my end a little bit. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, well I was gonna say I got mine um for the eye protection mainly because um using my angle grinder two minutes twice it happened where i've got the spark go into my eye and since Ooh. it's a hot bit of metal it really burns its way in and the only way to get it out is to go to the hospital and mm. have them get a needle and scratch it out mm. but yeah that 
I didn't learn my lesson the first time. So after the second time, <laughs> I was like, I'm getting one of these Versaflows. Um, wow. Yeah. Even second hand were about 450 quid or something like that. So they're not Ooh. cheap, but yeah. it, it just was so much easier to wear. And since they're nice to wear, it's not like, oh, I'm not going to bother putting it on for this. It, it takes a minute to put it on. It's really nice. So, um, yeah. yeah. Safety, safety first. Sometimes the safety squint is not enough. <laughs> <laughs> the safety squint. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a freak accident once um, where oh, I was yeah. using an angle grinder to cut uh, with a with a cutoff disc to uh, to cut a, an old piece of metal. And I was wearing safety glasses and a, um, a respirator, just that, you know, the one that covers the mouth and, and nose. And I had a, a piece of the uh, cutoff disc um, flew up, hit the bottom of my cheek, went underneath my safety glasses, mm. bounced off the lens, and went right into my oh. eye. <laughs> and I ended up having to go to the eye doctor, and uh, I tried all sorts of things at home. I was like, oh, it's metal. I'll just use a magnet. <laughs> and that didn't do it. And, and I tried Q-tips and all sorts of different things to try to get it out at home but it, it didn't work out um but yeah i went to the eye doctor and uh, it was fairly easy they just took some really fine um tweezers and just plucked it right off the uh the eye and i did learn my lesson and then i think the the following week i purchased <laughs> a 3m full ma full face mask respirator with you know two filters particulate filters and um and it's you know it's a little expensive. I think I spent a little over one hundred fifty dollars on it. Yeah. But by far the best investment and in, and in, that I've I've made into um, you know the the equipment I wear around the shop because I wear that all the time when I'm grinding when I'm doing any any sort of thing that's gonna kick up dust and particles and stuff like that. Yeah, it's easy to overlook health and safety. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. PPE and things like that, but. It only takes one little thing for it all to go wrong, and then you'd be like, oh, "Why didn't I have this? Or why didn't I have yes. this?" Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I think Especially it's time teaching... management. Yeah, when I teach people, I I always insist that they wear safety glasses. Yeah, mm. yeah. I don't want to be responsible for blinding people. No, no, that's, that's not, not a good way to end your knife class. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's amazing how dangerous. You know, my the thing that always gets me is, I always get injured in the stupidest way. It's like I'm not expecting it. It's some I'm not even doing anything that relates to the specific activity. You know, like yeah. rarely have I injured myself carving a spoon or yeah. ax, axing a blank. It's always like some stupid little in between yeah. activity or at the end. It's yeah. It's always so frustrating. <clears throat> it certainly is. Uh, speaking of injuries, you you'd suffered quite a, a significant injury here not too long ago, isn't that right? Yeah, um, it was back in April, um, and I was make or oh, I'd I'd made a cut on my mitre saw, uh, yeah. chop saw, and that's what you call them over there, isn't it? Chop saws. Yeah, <laughs> yeah chop saws. Chop saws, yeah. mitre saws. Mm -hmm. Um. But the thing is, I'd uh, the the guard. So normally you let go of. There's two triggers on it. One engages the guard, the other the the, uh, the blade. 
And so I'd taken my hand off a trigger that engages a guard, but mm. it didn't spring back to cover the blade. It had got jammed uh. up with dust or something like that. Mm. And so I turned it off. Like I finished making the cut, but it's still spinning and slowing down. And the yeah. blade was uncovered, which I didn't realize. And yeah, I put my hand to grab the piece of wood that was in the saw. Uh, but uh, yeah, managed to slice open the back of my hand. Um, yeah, it's just behind mm. my knuckles, and it's maybe mm. where well, it stretches from my little finger to behind my middle finger. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I cut three tendons. Jeez. Uh, yeah, but it was a bit of a shock. Um, oh, I'm sure. Oh yeah. Wow. Fortunately, like my my workshop's on a farm, and uh, uh, Tom, who um, is the farmer's son there, he's, he's a woodworker, and uh, yeah, he's, he's had friends who had similar things like this, so he's like, all right, I know which hospital to take to wear off now. Mm. So because he took me to the right hospital, yeah, I got operated on in a couple of hours, really. Um, oh, wow, that's great. Which, uh, so yeah, I was in hospital by about 11 a.m., and by half past four, I was discharged. Wow. Um, Wow, but, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it meant, yeah, I couldn't really do anything for a good two weeks, uh, four, four weeks. And then yeah, the, the entire healing time has been 12 weeks. Mm. Oh, wow. It's pretty quick. Quite, quite um, really made my heart drop when the, the, the consultant said to me, oh, yeah, you won't be doing anything for 12 weeks. Like, yeah. yeah, I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, as as a self-employed person who relies on their hand, being told that you're going to have to take three months off is not what you want to hear. Yeah, that's a hard yeah. pill to swallow. Yeah. Wow. Fortunately, so you've healed up. You've healed up well, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all all back to normal now, and um, yeah. Oh, I mean, awesome. I was quite worried Love because it. that happened on what the 13th of April. And mm. less, I think about 10 days after that was uh, Northern Bowl, where it's meant to be uh, teaching knife making. Mm. So it's like, how am I, how am I going to get there? Because I can't drive. How am, how am I going to take all my stuff? Because I, I can't drive, so I've got no way of taking it. But um, everyone that I know really helped get me through it. It's like I was teaching the knife making with Oscar Russ. So he was able to, well, I, I was still there. I still did it, but he was able to show it a bit more than I was because I only had one hand. And sure. um, like, I'm quite fortunate. My my next door neighbours, uh, Dan and Liz Watson, um, they're woodworkers as well. So they're like, oh, yeah, we'll be able to give you a lift. So I got lucky there. And they've got a huge mm. fan as well. So they're able to take a lot of my stuff. And nice. uh, Matty, who, well, you talked to Matty, haven't you? He, he runs yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And he he was very accommodating and he helped so much. And, um, yeah, yeah it, it's definitely, you, you know, you're in the right place when, when people are, are as kind as uh, green woodworkers that I know are. Um, Felt very lucky. Well, unlucky yeah. to have cut my hand, but lucky to have so many. Yeah, definitely. And caring friends who helped me out. Yeah, that's, oh, awesome. that's great. 
I'm glad I'm glad you're all healed up and and can continue doing what you uh, what you love and passion you're passionate about. Well, uh, it, it didn't really. I think even at Northern Bowl, ten ten uh, ten days into my injury, I was still I was able to forge a little bit. If I got the because I was wearing a, a big plastic splint to keep my hands still, mm-hmm. but I had my thumb free still, and <laughs> I hadn't really injured the tendons in my um, is it my index finger, the one next to your thumb. So I was still able to uh, hold tongs just about. So I was able to do a little <laughs> bit of forging. Uh, yeah, it's my left hand that I injured, and I'm right-handed, okay. so I, I got okay. lucky in that sense as well. Yeah, certainly. yeah, true, true. Wow. Just one of those moments where you, you just got to learn from it, and uh, yeah, yeah. I now know to be careful around around the night, might as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think in one way, I'm glad I did it because uh, I've got a huge, um, I think, 30 inch wheel diameter bandsaw in my workshop, which um, <clears throat> it, uh, it, I'm looking after it for Tom on the farm because um, it was outside. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, can we put it in your workshop? It'll keep it dry and I'll fix it up for you. And uh, yeah, that was two years ago. And we're just about getting it there. <laughs> um but uh yeah so once that's working i mean it just needs the guard putting on there so consider it is working but when i'm using that if i hadn't have already injured myself i think i'd be a lot more blasé with it and definitely the table on that is like a yard square it's huge oh wow that's awesome definitely has the, the capability of like if you trip up it'll saw you in half yeah. So um, yeah, I'm now going to be very cautious around it. <laughs> yeah. Definitely keep keep the area free of tripping hazards. Yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> it's wow. so nice having machinery around the shop. It just totally, oh, yeah. totally makes uh, certain things easier and maximizes, uh, you know, time and efficiency and optimizes things really nicely. But man, when <laughs> One, one annoying hurt, habit, one annoying yeah. habit of mine is I try to get by with what I got, and I'll be like, "Oh, yeah. I don't need that. I, I, I'm fine without it." And as I buy my machinery, the moment I get, it, it's like, "Why didn't I buy this years ago?" Yeah. It's like, yeah. Drill yeah. Press. I bought the drill press yeah. drilling metal with cordless drills is oh, yeah. it's a non-starter, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's quite hard. <laughs> I, I've managed to give myself a black eye and break some glasses trying to do that because oh, I was sure. drilling the metal. And as the dummy I am, I had my face really close to the drill. And then the bit <laughs> caught, but there was so much <sighs> torque in the drill that the drill Ooh. just kept on going and just, yeah, smacked me in the side uh, of the head. Yeah. Yep. I'm quite, quite incident prone, <laughs> it seems. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I am too. I see. Who knew you could get a black eye from a, a drill. hand drill? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, and so it's like buying the drill press. It's like why well, didn't I buy this ages ago? And uh, yeah, when I moved into my workshop, I bought a cheap little uh, stick welder. And from the yeah. moment I got it, I know it was rubbish because <laughs> it can just just about weld thin metal together. But if I want to weld like a handle onto some tooling to put underneath a power hammer, it just yeah. falls apart immediately. Mm, so I've had this weld for like three years and I know it's rubbish. 
Um, but obviously, I'm just going to stick out. I, I don't need to get myself a proper welder. I've got one, although it doesn't work. But um, yeah, a few days ago, I finally finally got myself a nice uh, MIG welder. And, oh, uh, nice. I've not got that set up yet because it's uh, waiting on a new plug. But yeah, I know once that's going, it's just going to change everything. So oh, I certainly, think, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, uh, I'm an advocate for buying new toys because it'll make your life a lot nicer <laughs> yeah mike likes buying toys i do like buying toys. <laughs> it's i think for me the biggest thing is uh time management like you know i have a full-time job um and i have a kid and i think just being able to um to do more with the little time that I have is, is is a priority for me. I mean, I only get about an hour, maybe two hours a day, if that. Yeah. <laughs> Not every day to do something uh, with my hands. So, um, yeah, I try to, I try to, you know, just t manage my time wisely and just be able to do more within that time. And machinery certainly helps um, in certain aspects. Yeah. It's the same for for green woodworking and and tools because like um, one of Lee Stoffer's scorps, which is that's like a right and left handed spoon knife. Yeah. And yeah, that I wouldn't make a spoon or anything else like a spoon without it. It's just such a versatile oh, sure. tool. Hmm. Yeah. So much easier. And yeah, just definitely. I think it's just a case of having the right tool for the job. Yeah, sure, other tools will work, but when you get the right, right. one, it works better and quicker. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking of time management and um, efficiency, being running your own business, um, I imagine that's a big part of producing a knife and making a living. You have to kind of get your systems down, figure out where the drag in your time is, and, and try to eliminate that as much possi as, as possible. Um, I'm curious about that. I'm, I'm really curious about the tool business. It's something that's fascinated me about the green woodworking world and just how there's seems like a insatiable demand for handmade carving tools. Well, I suppose I'm quite fortunate in the fact that people I sell to are customers make things by hand as well. So they appreciate the value of what i make um right because yeah to an outsider what i make they they don't make things so they don't know the effort that goes into it <laughs> and when you compare yeah. it to the things quickly made in a factory which won't be as good but yeah people can't understand why what i make might be like twice the price as what they can buy in a local uh, supermarket twice right. the price three five times the price yeah they're like oh, why would i do that but um yeah, yeah. green woodworkers know mm. what goes into it and appreciate the uh the quality i've never uh, yeah they just appreciate it so i've not really had anyone like try haggle me down on price before really <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, as for time management, yeah, I think being self-employed is you don't have someone like breathing down your neck. You don't have someone telling you what to do, when to do it. And I think it can be quite easy just to say, 
oh, I'll slack off today. I'll I'll leave work <laughs> earlier today. And yeah, I think it can be a bit of a challenge to um, discipline yourself. Um, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Finding a motivation really, and 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 um, getting yourself going. So, so you do, I was just, I was just looking at your website and you, you don't do like a waiting list or, or batches. You just sell and make kind of the same knives over and over. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, well, when I started, um, definitely the, the handles, I remember I did those to what the customer wanted, but okay. I find that adds too much pressure on because if someone says, this is what I want, then at the back of your mind, you've got to think this is exactly how they want it. And, <laughs> and I found the pressure of that was just too much. I find it much easier to make what I want in the the, the time span that I want as well. It's like if someone's asked you for something, they're waiting for it. So you've got to be as quick as you can. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it just gives you a lot more freedom and then, yeah, I just put them on my website and people buy what I want. I mean, I still tailor what I make to what people I want to. I'm not just making random stuff. Sure. So, yeah, so making things to order, it just uh, give, it's too much pressure and I don't want it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I hear time and again, it seems like. That's a really good. Uh, that's a really good philosophy to approach your your business with. I think it's something that I I value a lot, um, especially as a maker. I think those who want to spend time doing the things they enjoy doing and find creativity um, in their work, I think they have to approach it from that from that um, mindset. Um, and if you don't, you're just you're just working for the customer to some degree based on their needs, and it does add on a lot of pressure um, to make something to a specification that that the customer needs versus something that um, you're creating from a place of creativity and passion and something that you enjoy doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you and you know it's gonna work, what because you've made it so many times and right, right. It's very more predictable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You get really good at just doing the thing. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you? Oh yeah, go on. I was just gonna say, as a as a small business owner, do you? And I know being one myself, there's a lot of challenges that come along with that. One's the time management, the actual production of whatever it is, but then there's the marketing and ensuring that you're going to have business going forward. Do you, have you found it very difficult to run this business? Do you have to do anything creatively for marketing or does it seem like there's just a lot of natural uh, interest and, and you don't really have to sell them too hard? Uh, I think it's been a slow grow over the last year, much like the business, um, yeah, interest is slowly gathering up. Um, but yeah, I do have to find that, like I'll go for ages and I won't sell any, anything on my website. And then I'll look at my Instagram and go, oh yeah, I've not posted anything in three weeks. Mm. That's why. Mm. 
yeah. Um, and then uh, I'll make a post on Instagram, and it can be pretty much anything. Yeah. And that'll right. get eyes on me, and people go to my website and buy stuff. So nice. I am in somewhat a bit of a, a slave to Instagram, and yeah, it's a bit <laughs> of a dread. I try to keep to a weekly schedule with it. Um, yeah. I mean, I was meant to take a photo to put on today, but it's quite a miserable rainy day, and it's like, <laughs> so I don't have any proper lighting inside, so it's best to go outside, get natural light. But on a day like this, it's just like. I can't be bothered. And there's only so many ways you can take a picture of a knife before it all becomes samey. But at the same time, <laughs> I don't think cares. I think you can put the same picture up on Instagram and it'll still oh, yeah. get you lots of attraction. Yeah. yeah. It's it's really weird how the, the Instagram algorithm works. But yeah, it could be a post about anything. And for some reason, it gains traction and the marketing just kind of takes off. I think Zed Zed would agree. He he, I know he likes Instagram, and it's such a f valuable free marketing tool that I think anybody who's um, who yeah, has well, their own business. I, I definitely would not be doing what I do if it wasn't for Instagram. Oh, certainly, yeah. A lot of us, I think, um, I know in my own experience, Instagram was such a huge motivation and 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 inspiration to to um, follow a lot of different paths before I got to knife making. But it, it does then occasionally make me think, does that make me a, a social media influencer? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, perhaps it not does. in the traditional sense of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting world. I've actually been spending a lot of time the past few months kind of trying to understand marketing better because it's my weakest point in, in what I do. Um, and I, I feel like in the Greenwood world, there's... It seems like if you make a knife, it's like it's it's pretty natural marketing. Hmm. Whereas if you do something like I do, it's a little more obscure. Yeah. And I need I have a very specific type of client that I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. I have to be more strategic. Whereas exactly. you yeah. kind of have a you have a wide net. It's like you're interested in spoon carving, handmade stuff, knives. Right. You know, and knives have their own. I don't know. They they have their own thing to them. Like. You know, just talking to Mike, the few knives, the number of knives that he's sold over Instagram, it's just like, I feel like, I feel like you could sell a knife to almost anybody. Yeah, um, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody uses a knife mostly yeah. <laughs> uh, daily. <laughs> so, I mean, I think with what Adam is doing, it's obviously more specific to a certain group of people, certain population of those that are really interested in green woodworking and whittling. Um, and I, I, I love that part. And I, I've also kind of widened my approach to a little bit to like kitchen cutlery. And it's right. like, there's every person in the world exactly. uses a knife <laughs> on daily basis, you know, in their kitchen. The, so the, yeah. the thing I find with things like that though, is that, yeah. um, slide knives have a purpose and right. machine made right. don't really come in terms of there's not the quality control like i take all yeah. my knives and make sure they're all working right. properly you won't get that in right. the factory so right. there is the benefit a handmade uh, knife and so, so the person buying it goes all right i want that knife because i know it'll make what i carve better because the knife right. is better than a factory made thing so yeah. for something like a kitchen knife mm -hmm. for 
Joe Bloggs at home, who's got stainless steel kitchen knives, which he bought oh, yeah, for 10 quid from Asda. Um, right. <laughs> those all work just fine for him. If he got a really yeah. fancy, like, sand my knife, as you were on about, um, yeah. it won't really improve anything. He'll just get the satisfaction of every time he sees it. Of, oh, yeah, that's a yeah. nice. That's yeah. true. <laughs> Price that true. difference. It's yeah. like 20 right. times more expensive and cheap little yeah. life that you can get from his yeah so oh, yeah yeah it's a lot more difficult unless what you're making is really 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 nice yeah um right. it's difficult to sell them yeah no i would agree i think that's yeah that's a really good point so there. in other words you have to be better at marketing to sell a kitchen knife than right. you do to sell a sloyd knife or a spoon knife or a really nice axe yeah. Because my marketing, I rely heavily on making a good product that someone will buy and they'll, uh, I've forgotten the person that you said you saw the knife of, but exactly, that, that's what uh, I rely Jordan. on. Someone get yeah. me a knife and then telling their, their friends about it because it's so good. Right. Exactly, right. exactly. Yep. Word of mouth is the best marketing. I think any any handmade product, whether it's a, a carving knife or a kitchen knife, the the customer who's looking for that sort of product, they they would have to understand and appreciate what yeah. it takes to um, to make a knife, you know, and all the all the effort and and handwork that goes into creating something like that uh, that's handmade by somebody they can connect with, they can talk to. It's a person. It's not a machine in a in yeah. a warehouse. So um, there's there's definitely is you know a, a population of customers out there who are who are looking for that, and um, yeah, we just have to find them. <laughs> so where do you see your business going in the future? Your craft? Do you plan to expand your product line? Or are you kind of honing in on what you already do? Question. So I quite happy with the knives I do. What I'm thinking, especially with um, everything getting more expensive, I think yeah. I'm faced with two options. You can either make fewer of one thing and make it exceptional, but then that makes it really expensive. So yeah. I want to be aiming um, for something more affordable, but just as good. Um, so yeah, I mentioned earlier about my laser cut knives. Um, I started doing those a year ago now, and okay. they've fast become my biggest seller now. Mm. Um, and yeah, because I'm getting them cut out of house, I'm not forging right. them, but I'm still heat treating them the same. I'm still grinding them the same. So the edge is the same as a forged knife. But yeah. because I'm not having to forge it, the, the production cost is a lot less. So I can sell oh, them yeah. for almost half the price i think of my my forged blades okay so i i think uh, but, but the main issue is that i've not got a way of making handles for them on mass so far but i am mm. working on that um okay. so yeah I, I can't like the idea of making something really good but also really affordable um yeah yeah it's it's kind of like what Robin Wood has done with his axe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. certainly. Um, his uh, his new axe as well that they're making. Oh, I really like that. He's um, 
yeah, the, he's getting them drop forged in Sheffield. Um, right. Which is really nice. So I, I bet he's probably one of very few people getting axes made in Sheffield. Mm. Nice. So cool. So cool. Yeah. If anybody can put a word into Robin's ear that we want to talk to him, we yes. need some help. <laughs> yes. We've been trying, I think, since the very beginning yeah. of our. Uh, He's too busy. Uh, our podcast, the inception of our podcast, we've been trying to reach out to Robin to uh, to get him on the podcast. So next time you see next time you see him, Adam, just uh, yeah, yeah, drop a little word. Well, well, <laughs> I I shall. Uh, I do know people who know him quite well, so may, maybe I'll try pass on the message. Yeah, <laughs> nice. If we help. if we need to um, send him a handwritten letter, <laughs> we will do that. <laughs> we just need a good address for him. If you, can, if you can courier a letter for us, that'd be yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm sure we could keep talking the rest of the day. Um, but is there anything else you wanted to to discuss while we're on the on the podcast? Uh, I, I don't think there is, to be honest. I think yeah. we've covered everything at least twice now. <laughs> yeah. Good talk. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, uh, our famous last question is. What is what does Sloyd mean to you? Well, as I said, considering what I did to my hand earlier <laughs> this year, I think Sloyd to me now means family. Oh, um, hmm. because That's especially great. at the hmm. bowl gathering this year, um, I was talking to to Dio, the spoon crank, and he'd never been before, and he said at the bowl gathering it, it really felt just like one big family because everyone, mm. everyone knows everyone there we all get on really well and it's it's just so lovely to be able to just hang out and have such an amazing time with each other and yeah after yeah we might experience my hand and everyone just being so helpful thoughtful kind yeah that that's what slide means to me now Nice. I that's love awesome. That. Yeah. That's we great. haven't gotten that one yet. <laughs> no, that's a new one. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, if anyone wants to look you up and buy a tool, where should they go, Adam? Uh, there's my website, which is www.ashandiron.co.uk, and my Instagram, which is adamashworth97. Awesome. Awesome, man. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you and, uh, maybe sometime Mike and I'll make our way over there and yeah, we can, uh, meet in person. Not, uh, not in the South of London. Yeah. But... We won't go South of London. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cool. Don't make sure you bring a map with you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yorkshire. We'll come up to Yorkshire. <laughs> Some Yorkshire pudding. Yeah. Well, Alrighty. Done, well, uh, until next time, take care, Adam. Take care. Right. Bye. Bye bye. Record. Yeah. Okay, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> like, All right. Just recording started? All right. All right. Well, now for our outro. Oh, our outro. Yeah, shit. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm having to use the bathroom here fairly quickly because we've been here sitting for two hours. <laughs> All right. That is a wrap on our second episode of the year or no our third episode of the year third emmett one a quarter
Okay. Yeah. One a one a quarter. That's <laughs> hey. That's our new uh our new goal for for the. If we can do that, we're actually doing pretty well. Yeah. If we can do one a quarter, I think we, we will be got, in a good we place. We just got to do one more before the year end. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't have much to say. We've been kind of in hibernation mode over here, but we uh, Mike and I have a lot going on in our lives. Children, mm. work. Um. Yeah. It's been a busy time of life. Yeah. So we're trying to get as many people or as much work as we can done on the podcast, but it's been pretty slow this year. So, um, you know, it always helps when we get messages of people telling us how much they enjoy the podcast, uh, getting suggestions. If anyone can put a word into Robin ears, uh, <laughs> ear, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that'll help. Cause we've been trying to get him on for a couple of years now. Yeah. Um, and yeah, without further ado, I think that's about it. Uh, yeah. We'll let you know when there's more. But yeah. Until next time. Floyd out. Floyd out. out. <laughs>